Thank you. Thank you very much, smart people, early birds. This will be a really interesting pre-concert talk that includes an interview with the artist. Thank you for being here, it's good to be with you. I'm Christoph Bull, organist at UCLA and at First Congregational Church of Los Angeles. And without further ado, let's bring out our artist for tonight, Iveta Apkalna. Iveta, guten Abend. Guten Abend. Vielen Dank fürs Kommen. Danke. Wollen wir das in Deutsch machen? Uh, well, we could do in German, we could do in Latvian, we could do in Russian, we could do in English. You may choose. Let's do English, okay. yeah? <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for making some time for us. That always means a lot. I know you, you want to meditate and get centered, but we really love to hear from the artists. So we're going to spend about 10 minutes together and, and we're going to find out a little bit about the music. And then Iveta is going to go back and put on her very special shoes. I just heard about that. Very special shoes. You want to tell us about that? Well, uh, that's really uh, very special and it's very important to me. And I have custom-made shoes. Uh, my shoemaker, who unfortunately died uh, three years ago, he passed away. Um, he uh, was my shoemaker for nearly 20 years. And uh, organ shoes, for me, it's approximately the same as for a ballet dancer or flamenco dancer dancing shoes. And uh, uh, they really, they, they help. They, of course, have to look good, I think. It's part of, of, part of a deal. But most of all, uh, they, they really uh, help me really to feel the pedal uh, and also yeah. to manage all technical difficulties. Um, but of course, don't don't believe that once you put on those golden shoes, I have my golden ones with me, you may play the same good as I do. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Dang! A lot of hopeful people there. So, just to tell you, it's not all in about shoes, but a shoes is really a big you, deal. You, right? you, you still need to practice. I get it. That's what right. I tell my students too. Yeah. <laughs> Looks is not everything. Um, Iveta, you were born in Latvia. And now you live in Berlin and in Riga, and you have a family. How do you do that? How, how, first of all, how did you get to Germany, and how do you juggle these different locations? Uh, you see, it's um, really all about um, very, very good discipline. It's about uh, time planning, uh, and it's um, also um, about very good health. Once you have all those, three um, uh, competence you can manage. But of course it's not easy. That's true, my husband is German, that's why I live in Germany. Why Berlin? Berlin is a fantastic city, uh, but I'm very proud to be Latvian. Uh, and I find that Latvia is really a beautiful, beautiful, the most beautiful country on this earth. And we are, um, you know, we, we are just 2.3 million inhabitants in our country. It's really little. But we are so proud and we are so musical. We have so many fantastic musicians. Uh, uh, all the world uh, speaks uh, uh, about them and all the world wants to listen to them. Uh, whether it's Gidon Kramer, Maris Sjansons, Elena Garanja, Misha Maisky. Uh, by the way, Mikhail Baryshnikov uh, comes from Latvia. Okay. He he, yes. All and, right. you know, Not many, from New York City, right? No, no, no. <laughs> no. And he has also Latvian citizenship, yes. by the way. So anyway, I'm very proud to, to belong to, to this country. But my two little children, um, 
our son is 11 years old and our daughter is eight. So this is the very, very, very big, maybe the biggest part, of course, of my heart, of my love and all my all being. And I always say that in the first position, I am mother and a woman, and only then I'm organist. Fantastic. I love that. And I love to hear about your love for your home country. And I think that also expresses itself in you featuring music from Latvia. Do you want to tell us about that? I think tonight you're going you're gonna to play some Latvian composers. Right, and Peter Isvask, whose uh, hymn for organ will be premiered tonight. He will be present. He's oh, there. Oh, wonderful. And therefore, I hope for a very warm applause for him um, after the piece. Um, and you see, uh, Peter Isvask, uh, I, I maybe will just shortly tell uh, about Peter Is. Uh, he is a very special person. Um, he lives um, in one breath together with uh, nature. And mm. you, can, you can really feel it in his music. And also this hymn is actually um, kind of prayer and alleluia to the nature. Wonderful. And uh, I'm really very much looking forward. I think it's the one, one of the most exciting moments tonight to, to, to hear this music for the first time. And this is a commission by the Elliot Phil. Right. How did that come about? Did you recommend that? Yes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, I did. <laughs> you said, I'll come <laughs> back if... Kind of. A little yes. bit of a negotiation, kind right? Of, kind of. You know, I told you, we Latvians were very, very strong and very proud and, and very tough. And, you, and, you know and, what and you want. Yes. And you say so. Yes. I know. Exactly. So, um, but I, uh, I really love Latvian organ music. There's a lot, a, a lot of beautiful music in the Latvian organ literature, and uh, that's why one more composition of Ivar Skales just before Peter Isvasks. And Ivar Skales is one very good friend and colleague of mine. He's organist and composer, also very good pianist, um, and um, looks eterna, so um, uh, eternal light. Yes. Uh, it, this choice is not um, accidentally, you know, this is um, in, in, in whole first part of the concert playing contemporary music, which is Guaidulina, Philip Glass, um, uh, Ivar Skales and Peter Iswasks, I wanted to give public uh, one very important message. Um, I think we all nowadays are in big luck of time uh, big lack of silence uh, outside, inside of us, uh, which also um, brings us to big lack of um, harmony sometimes in ourselves and also with others. And this lack of time and silence and light, I wanted to put in the music. That's why yes. Light and Dark of Sofia Gubaidulina, that's why Eternal Light um, um, by Ivar Skales, that's why Hymn to the Nature by Peter Iswasks, and that's why Philip Glass with his mad rush, because what we are doing, we are just rushing like mad through the life. And this is basically what I, what I, what I want to, I want to succeed in the first part of the program to tell little more than just is written in notes in the score. Absolutely. If I, if I may, might uh, elaborate a little bit on that. So I noticed that you also have a few uh, well-known, shall we call them hits, like the Vidor yes. Toccata. Vidor Toccata is uh, absolutely opener and hit, and, and, and it's just, the, 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 I think, the most popular uh, piece played on the weddings and 
I, I love it. Yeah. But I not on my wedding. I didn't want to hear this. I didn't want to hear organ on my wedding. I didn't okay. Have <laughs> did you, what did you have? String quartet or what did you do? <laughs> no, actually, uh, of course, the, there was organ, but it, it, it was just because, of course, in the church there is organ, and I was really proud that my professor played for me. Uh, but it was not Vidor and it was not Mendelssohn. So um, anyway. <laughs> so I noticed that you that you do combine the classics with some new music. That's something I also really like. I like to give people something they know, but then also something that they don't know. And you are one of the contemporary organists who is credited for helping to revitalize the organ. So can you tell a little bit more, how do we make this uh, instrument more popular? I know you're one of the people who is actually doing it. It's such a great instrument, but sometimes it's, in the, it's not as well known as we would like for it to be. No, thank you. Um, yeah, you see, it's very important. It's, uh, of course, part of my m activity as a musician, but honestly speaking, I have never created a plan how to make organ more popular. Right. Let's sit on the desk, put on paper, and then think, maybe invite some PR agent, and then make it popular. I never thought like that. You know, just doing, uh, being very authentic, and, and opening your heart, and being very, very honest mm. in the choice of music you play, and being also, uh, let's say, al also always going for a certain risk. Yes. Uh, fight with uh, organizers of the concerts who say, oh no, nobody wants to hear this. And I said, how do you know? Do you know this music? No, I don't know. But <laughs> our public is not used to listen to this. I said, let's wait and see. So it's always sometimes really going contra. Yes. Um, this is only thing what I had been going through and now I don't have to... Um, explain why i just now people offer. let you do it yes. <laughs> yes they let me do it and i'm so happy of course I, um uh, to me it's, it's very important what public thinks what public um, receives how public receives but i think the m even more important is that the program i play is music what i love so and if if i love every note in in the program i will be performing tonight then i hope that also you will love it Absolutely. So your love for the repertoire you're playing, that's a big part of it. Also pushing for, hey, let's try something different. And I do think sometimes uh, the organ world is too conservative, you know? That's absolutely and, true. Absolutely. And we, we do want to preserve the tradition, but we don't want to, as Karl Richter said, pray over the ashes, right? right. We want to keep it alive. Right. And I think my Latvian temperament helps me. I already told that we are very strong, we are very stubborn, we are very <laughs> proud and... Uh, I just, uh, yeah, I think Lat music is Latvia and Latvia is music. It's very loud uh, uh, what I said, but that's how I feel. You're, you're a great ambassador for Latvia. A couple of more questions so you can get back to uh, concentrating on the, on the concert. We all heard about a little place called Elbphilharmonie in Hamburg, and there is an organist there, a titular organist, and that's you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. How did that happen, and, and what does that entail? What does it mean to be a titular organist at Elbphilharmonie? Oh, you know, this is uh, a fantastic place. I, I say there's so many concert calls, there are so many philharmonies, and there is Hamburg and Elbphilharmonie. It's completely different. This is some place to, to experience um, it's really difficult to explain how one musician feels there on that stage, but I feel there, honestly speaking, like in my living room. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, this is really very positive because every time I play on this huge stage for this public, which is in a beautiful hall with nice acoustic, I really feel uh, like I'm 
in my family, you know, and, uh, uh, but it doesn't have to do with the fact that I'm titular organist there, which is of course great honor. And I never thought that a German concert hall would invite uh, an organist who is not German, because for Germans it's very important to invite only Germans for very important positions, that they will invite someone who is not German to, to um, be titular organist of this house. And that's really true. There was no possibility to apply to go through the competition. It would have been in, if I had said no. So, uh, so it's actually really great honor I got this invitation and I had to say yes and no and of course I said yes. And I was really very excited to open this house and also to play the first organ recital there. And now I'm also planning organ concerts. And um, I'm kind of um, more like artistic advisor of Absolutely. that organ. I'm not taking care technically about that organ. So I'm, I'm not really there every day. I even don't live in Hamburg. Yes. <laughs> but uh, this organ is in my heart. And, and, and since that very moment, which was 18 months before El Philharmonie was open from that very moment when I got this position, uh, the organ, wonderful Kleis organ uh, of El Philharmonie is actually like one member of my family. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very, very nice. That is fantastic. Wrapping up, between your German husband and you strong Latvian woman, who's the more disciplined? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we can manage our everyday life because we both are very disciplined. That's and very and good. because we actually, um, we feel uh, we feel we are not Germans or Latvians. We, uh, in our family, we speak German and Latvian and English. It's really funny, isn't it? I'll tell you something. I I, I, I speak with children. Uh, I speak to children Latvian. My husband, of course, German. But at the moment, uh, I got to know my husband. Uh, I didn't speak German, so we started our communication in English, so that's how it goes. <laughs> He's the only German in all Germany to whom I speak English. Oh, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you for making some time for us. We're looking forward to a wonderful concert. Thank you so much. I'd love to tell more, but some time is running. It, it was perfect. Thank you so much, Iveta. Right. Let's talk about what else we're going to hear. Iveta already talked about the new pieces. Um, she also said that there is a very famous organ piece at the beginning, the Toccata by Vidor. As a matter of fact, often it's called the Vidor Toccata. That's not the title of the piece, but it's the Toccata in F from the Fifth Symphony by Charles-Marie Vidor. And um, the piece has a, a relentless repeating rhythmical pattern that accommodates ever-changing harmonies. You'll hear that later. It's a very rhythmical piece that demands precision and clarity. Vito was actually very unhappy at how fast some organists played the piece, because if you play too fast, it's a little bit of a show-off, but it becomes like a wash. And, and if you look at the score, there's a staccato mark, which means staccato short note, on top of almost every note in the piece. And being a composer myself, I know composers don't do that for fun. They usually mean something by that. And I found a little rarity on YouTube of Vidor recording his own piece at the ripe age of 88 at uh, the Church of Saint-Sulpice in Paris. So it's a historically interesting recording. It's, it's not great because he was in his late 80s and uh, recording technology wasn't that amazing in 1932, but it probably does give us a little bit of an idea about the tempo that he thought the piece should have. So let's see what we have here. 
and Toccata and F by Vidor. So that, that is a little bit slower than some people play, and I think that's a pretty good tempo, actually. Uh, Vidor lived a long life, from 1844 to 1937, from the times of Napoleon III to the Third Republic, and he reached the age of 93. His teachers included the Belgian organist Nicolas Lemont, who imparted knowledge of Bach's music on him. Uh, Vidor was a big champion of Bach's music. In 1870, organ builder Cavalier Cole and composer Charles Gounod recommended Vidor for the position of acting organist at the 17th century church Saint-Sulpice in Paris. That's the organ that we just heard. And Vidor held that temporary position for almost 64 years <laughs> before being succeeded by Marcel Dupré. You know, there was like this era uh, of, uh, era of French organists where they all, you know, turned over their jobs to each other. He was in charge of a five-manual, 98-stop Cavalier Col organ. In 1891, upon the death of César Franck, Vidor became professor of organ at the Paris Conservatoire, a conservatory in Paris. He was known for exactness and high quality of musicianship and also for rigorous and demanding standards of teaching. His students included Milot, Onegel, Albert Schweitzer, Tournemire, and Vienne. Louis Vienne described Vidor at the organ console. Immobile in the center of the stool, his body lightly leaning forward. When he pulled stops, his movements were mathematically ordered so as to cause a minimum loss of time. His hands, like sculpture, admirably cared for. No fruitless gesture ever disturbed the visual harmony constantly in accord with the sonorous harmony. That was Vierne about Vidor. Vidor wrote 10 organ symphonies, and the symphony is a genre that's not usually applied to works for only one instrument. Usually it's a whole orchestra that plays symphonies. The fact that this term was used for these pieces had to do with the organs they were played on. Those organs were symphonic in style, and their orchestral range inspired writing that was symphonic in scope. The first eight of Vidor's organ symphonies, including the fifth, which the toccata we're hearing tonight is a part of, are not symphonies in the Austro-Germanic sense. Austro-Germanic meaning Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, those guys, but rather like organ suites. The music is tonal, but includes highly chromatic passages modulating to distant keys, and you'll hear that in the opening piece. The predecessors to this genre include Alcance's four-movement symphony for piano solo from 1857 and César Franck's Grande Pièce Symphonique from the six pieces written between 1859 
1962. So there was a couple of pieces, known pieces, that were symphonic in nature before Vidor, but he really took it to another level by writing 10 organ symphonies. Um, composers who wrote symphonies, organ symphonies after Vidor include the aforementioned Louis Vian and the German composer Enjot Schneider. The second piece in the program is one of uh, the lesser known pieces. It's by the composer Sofia Gubaidulina, who is a Tartar, excuse me, Tatar Russian composer. Iveta's program really is a challenge in terms of pronunciation. I spent an hour earlier today going on forvo.com. Do you know that, what, that site? They have pronunciation for just about anything, and I listen to a lot of it. But she's got a lot of those people. So this composer was born in 1931 in Chistopol, which is now in the Republic of Tatarstan. She studied composition and piano at the Kazan and Moscow conservatories. Since 1992, she's been living in Hamburg, Germany. During her studies in Soviet Russia, her music was called irresponsible due to her use of alternate tunings. However, one of her professors, Dmitry Shostakovich, encouraged her. Gubaidulina is a profoundly spiritual person and a devout member of the Russian Orthodox Church. Her music has been described as capturing the longing of the soul of humanity to locate its true being. She has written for orchestra, vocal and chamber ensembles, and, as in the piece tonight, solo instruments. She's also written for film, for example, the Russian animated picture Adventures of Mowgli, an adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. And this Russian version was made around the same time as the Disney version being first released in 1967. And I actually found a clip, but uh, we, we couldn't get the screen set up, the logistics didn't work. So, but you can look for it on YouTube, the Russian Jungle Book, or Russian Adventures of Mowgli. I do have an audio example. This is the, the opening of the movie, and it's, it's, it's quite trippy, if I may say. It's a, it's, it's a treat. It's a great little animated feature. It actually was first split up into uh, five episodes and then later turned into a full movie. Um, Gubaidulina's music has been influenced by electronic music and improvisational techniques. She has expressed a fascination with percussion instruments and she's employed unusual instrumental combinations. She's often used chromaticism and even microchromaticism as well as durational ratios. The title of tonight's piece Hell und Dunkel means light and dark in German. It was written for organ in 1976. This is also the title of Iveta's new album, 
Uh, I was told that the store has a few vinyl copies in, in stock. Any people here do vinyl? Any vinyl people? Yeah, a few, few connoisseurs, so snatch up those vinyl copies. Uh, apparently, Naxos, the distributor of the album, has some problems with their storage, so they couldn't get more CDs out. But that's the new album, check it out. While you're there, also check out my album, First and Grant, recorded right here at the Disney Hall, first album of the Oregon. I just dropped off 30 copies before doing this talk. If you buy them up, I'll come back tomorrow, replenish. <laughs> All right, I got in my shameless self-promotion. This is America, I learned to do, do it here. <laughs> it's really true. In Germany, everybody is taught, oh, be, be modest, don't toot your own horn, but here, we don't believe that. <laughs> Philip Glass, Mad Rush, is the piece we're gonna hear tonight. Philip Glass, uh, an American treasure. I was very lucky to, to meet him last year at Carnegie Hall in New York City. Uh, my wife, Ichin, was one of the soloists in The Passion of Ramakrishna being premiered on the East Coast by the Pacific Symphony. And, and it was wonderful to meet him in person and, and, and people were, were so happy to see him and hear that piece. So he's, he's become an American treasure and his music is, is uh, becoming more and more popular. It's always been popular, but it's, it's being played even more now. Um, he has been considered a minimalist composer like Steve Reich and Terry Riley like most minimalists, he doesn't love that term. He describes his work as music with repetitive structures. He has composed for opera and musical theater, symphonies, concertos, string quartets, chamber music, and film scores. Cornish Quatsi is one of his famous scores. The Hours is another one. He's also written for solo instruments, such as the organ. His organ works include Dance Number no. 4 and Mad Rush, which is the one we're gonna hear tonight. He is also a performer with the Philip Glass Ensemble playing keyboards. One of their pieces is the four-hour-long music in 12 parts. Glass said that the last part of this work, which features a 12-tone theme sung by soprano voice, was the end of minimalism for him. Glass learned a lot about music from his father, who had a music store and listened to new and old music for hours in the evenings. Glass mentions, maybe a little bit unexpectedly, Franz Schubert, German romantic composer, as a big influence growing up. He studied flute as a child and keyboard instruments at Juilliard in New York. He also studied mathematics and philosophy at the University of Chicago. And I think that, that love for math and for philosophy does come across in his music. He studied composition with Darius Milo at the Aspen Music Festival and with Nadia Boulanger in Paris. He also was influenced by the French filmmakers Jean Cocteau, Jean-Luc Godard, and François Truffaut, one of my famous um, favorite filmmakers, Truffaut. Check it out. His music developed differently than the music by modernist composers like Boulez and Stockhausen, and he commented on this. So this is Philip Glass speaking. That generation, Boulez and Stockhausen, wanted disciples. And as we didn't join up, it was taken to mean that we hated the music, which wasn't true. We'd studied them at Juilliard and knew their music. How on earth can you reject Burial? Those early works of Stockhausen are still beautiful, but there was just no point in attempting to do their music better than they did, and so we started somewhere else. Mad Rush, tonight's piece, was originally part four of Glass's 
fourth series written between 1977 and 1979. Glass performed it himself on piano, including when the 14th Dalai Lama made his first public appearance in New York City in the fall of 1981. It can also be found on his 1989 album, Solo Piano. And I'm gonna play a little bit from that. So this is the opening of Mad Rush from the album Solo Piano, played by Glass himself. sounds on piano, and tonight we're going to hear how it sounds on organ. Uh, that that is, actually works for several of Glass's pieces. They, they might have been written for piano, but work quite well on the organ. Also, his orchestral pieces tend to work well on the organ, and, and he certainly loved the instrument. The fourth piece tonight is written by a compatriot of Iveta. She briefly talked about him in the interview, Ivas Kales. He's a Latvian composer, organist, and pianist born in Riga in 1951. He's written more than 100 symphonic, organ, piano, chamber music, and choral pieces. He's also concertized in Europe, America, and Asia. Lux Eterna means eternal light and is the communion antiphon for the Roman Catholic Requiem Mass. That's the title of the piece we're gonna hear tonight, Lux Eterna. It has been often set to music, including by Verdi, Ligeti, George Crumb and Morton Lauritsen, our own Morton Lauritsen, teachers at USC over there. Um, I find it very fascinating to compare how different composers set the same subject. So I found a few examples of the various composers writing on Luke's Eterna, Eternal Light. So here's Verdi from the Requiem. for me to fade this out, but I am on a schedule. They told me I can't talk long, which I love to do. I love to talk long. Uh, Ligeti, Ligeti, Lux Eterna, another take.
example is Morton Lauritsen, Luke's Eterna. I've been very lucky to, to have played that piece a couple of times with the Pacific Symphony. Uh, this is the Onata Luke's movement. for a setting of Luke's Eterna, and tonight we're going to hear one set for the organ, so I'm very curious to hear that. Um, it, was, it was written at the occasion of Olivier Messiaen's death. Famous, very important organ composer Olivier Messiaen died in 1992, and Ivas Calais wrote his Luke's Eterna as a tribute to Messiaen, who was also an extremely spiritual person. Um, Lots of musicians are spiritual in one way or the other, but, but some more overtly so than other. Messiaen certainly was. Fifth piece tonight is a world premiere and commissioned by the LA Philharmonic. If you were here for the interview, this teaches you be here early because that's when you hear the artist. And she is very passionate about this, and she told us that she actually pretty much told the LA Phil, hey, commission this piece. It's called Hymnos. And uh, it's, she, she uh, quickly talked about it and said it's about nature. That's one of the things it's about. The composer, Peteris Vasks, was born in 1946 in Latvia, so another compatriot. He studied violin and double bass and is now an influential and celebrated European contemporary composer. He has been influenced by Lutoslavsky, Penderecki, and George Crumb. He's also made use of minimalist techniques and Latvian folk music. Another thing that a lot of classical composers like to do, like for example Gustav Mahler, is to incorporate folk music in their symphonic music or instrumental music. Johann Sebastian Bach, heard of that guy? Yeah! yeah. So that's one of the hits. So uh, We heard that. So Iveta does something that I like to do also, combine some hits with some newer stuff. You know, when you're a rock musician like the Rolling Stones, it's very hard to play newer stuff, right? Everybody wants to hear, I can get no satisfaction. It's a little bit like that in classical music too. You know, a lot of times people want to hear stuff that they already know. So we can do that, but it's also important to keep the art alive and program new music. So tonight we're going to have both. Bach, as we know, is the grandmaster of organ music and of polyphony. He came from a long line of musicians, and that line continued after his death with four of his sons. His first lessons in music were by his father on the violin, and he sang as a boy soprano in the church choir. Bach's mother and father both died, get this, when he was nine years old, within a span of eight months. That's important to remember. So Bach was an orphan at age nine. After that, his oldest brother, Johann Christoph, who was a church organist, took care of him and instructed him on keyboard. Maybe it's also worth pointing out that uh, Bach had 20 children, but only 10 of them reached adulthood. So this is a guy who lost both of his parents at age nine, 
and lost 10 of his children. And yet, his music is, is so spiritual, sometimes so exuberant, like the piece we're going to hear tonight, so life-affirming, truly remarkable. Here's a little bit about uh, his professional career. In 1703, he became the violinist in the chamber orchestra of Duke Johann Ernst of Weimar. He was also a substitute organist. I love that, Bach being a substitute organist, which afforded him the opportunity to practice long hours on the church organ. He was organist in Arnstadt from 1704 to 1707 and in Mühlhausen from 1707 to 1708. He became court organist and later concertmeister, which means concertmaster, in Weimar at the court of Duke Wilhelm Ernst from 1708 to 1717. I hope you remember all those numbers because you are going to be quizzed a little bit later. <laughs> Bach wrote a lot of his organ music during this period from circa 1708 to 1717, from when he was in his early 20s to when he was in his early 30s. However, at this time, Bach was not known so much as a composer, but more for his organ playing. Music historian Johann Matheson referred to him as the famous organist from Weimar. In 1717, Bach started a position as court conductor in Köthen, not before having been placed under house arrest at his previous place of employment as a punishment for his lack of obedience to the Duke. So even Bach was your typical rebel musician. These musicians, even Iveta, could you tell? A rebel, those people. Careful. In Curtin, where he stayed until 1723, Bach was primarily the conductor of the court orchestra and wrote some of his greatest instrumental music. In general, the genres and instrumentations of Bach's compositions usually correlate to the specific musical duties of his employment. Meaning, if he, he was at a court, he would write a lot of instrumental music. If he was at a church, he might write some choral church music or organ music. So it, he was a working musician his whole life. In 1723, Bach became cantor in Leipzig. His primary duty was to compose choral music for two large churches, Thomas Kirche and Nikolai Kirche. And that's where a lot of the cantatas were written. Uh, and most of his choral music actually was written in Leipzig. As per his contract, Bach was also teacher at the School of St. Thomas, but time wouldn't always allow him to fulfill those duties. For example, he was known to farm out his Latin teaching gig to others. He was not required to play the organ in church services during this time, as he was at previous places of employment. However, he did work as an organ consultant an inspector of pipe organs, meaning somebody built a new organ, Bach came over, check it out, is it good? No, if Bach thought it was no good, then I guess they had to melt the pipes and build some new ones. <laughs> Bach stayed in Leipzig until the end of his life in 1750. I already told you he was a deeply spiritual man, and when he died, he dictated a setting of the hymn, For deinen Thron trete ich all hier, Before thy throne I step to his son-in-law only a few days before his death. The musical tradition of the Bach family continued, as I said earlier, with four of his sons. They were Wilhelm Friedemann, Karl Philipp Emanuel, Johann Christoph, nice name, and Johann Christian Bach. I was gonna play you a, a video with pictures from his history because a few years back I had the opportunity to work with a UCLA filmmaker 
Eric Marin in retracing Bach's steps, but we couldn't get the video set up. If you're interested, look it up on YouTube on my channel. Here's another shameless plug. Uh, it's actually Org99, the French spelling of Organ, Org99, or you just Google Christoph Bull YouTube. And at Bach's 333rd birthday, which was last year, I, I made this video with some of his music and photos of many of the stations of his life. A little bit about the piece we're going to hear tonight. The Prelude and Fugue in E-flat, nicknamed St. Anne, are the first and last pieces of his Klavierübung Dritter Teil. This collection consists of 27 pieces total, so the Prelude is number one and the Fugue is number 27. And tonight we're going to hear him play together, which is another way to do it. Uh, a little bit context about Klavierübung Dritter Teil. Klavierübung means keyboard practice which is a kind of modest name for what he did uh, because it's a massive work and he wrote four parts, all of which had multiple pieces. I was gonna tell a little bit more about part one, two, and four, but I'm gonna keep it short. Four is the Goldberg Variations, which we heard a couple of years ago, played by Felix Hell. And, and of course, three, we're gonna hear something from tonight, and that was also called the Organ Mass. And Albert Schweitzer wrote about this. And, and about Martin Luther's influence on Bach. Luther had written a greater and a smaller catechism. In the former, he demonstrates the essence of the faith. In the latter, he addresses himself to children. Bach, the musical father of the Lutheran church, feels it incumbent on him to do likewise. He gives us a larger and smaller arrangement of each chorale. The larger chorales are dominated by a sublime musical symbolism aiming simply at illustrating the central idea of the dogma contained in the words. The smaller ones are of bewitching simplicity. So Bach was a teacher. He was a musical te teacher. A lot of his, his works are meant to teach, and, and Klavierübungsritterteil is also spiritual teaching. Um, the fugue is nicknamed Saint Anne. This is not a name that Bach came up with, but that nickname happened because the first theme of the fugue sounds like that hymn. Actually, the first seven notes of the theme and the first eight notes of the hymn are the same. And the LA Phil, aren't they great? They rolled out a Steinway & Sons piano for me just so I could write, play those seven notes. So these are the first seven notes of the fugue. And then Bach does what he does. Beautiful music. The hymn goes like this. see organists do not need the sustain pedal. So this is the St. Anne hymn. That's an inside joke. There's some organists here. They know that. Um, and, you know, I also found a version of the hymn sung by Bing Crosby. When I found that, I thought, I gotta play that. Okay, let's, let's see. Bing Crosby was also a spiritual man, and this is actually recorded with organ, but not an organ like the Disney Hall. You'll hear it in a second. Our hope 
for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home beneath the shadow of thy throne thy saints have dwelt secure sufficient is thy Okay, I, I, I have to wrap. I've got another little nugget for you. Um, the last composer of the program is Franz Liszt. And of course, Franz Liszt was a superstar pianist, performer. He was known as a composer. He uh, was not known as an organist. He, he played a pedal piano, which is a little bit of like a mock-up of an organ where you, where you have a piano, but you can also play it with pedals. And he was known to give one organ performance, but he was mostly known as, uh, as a pianist. And he was a big star, had long hair, it helps. But it's not the only thing. You know, like Iveta says, the shoes and the hair, that's just part of it. And um, the German poet Heinrich Heine coined the term listomania. This was before Beatlemania. Listomania, and actually they made a movie about it in 1975. I think I need to get my notes for that. It was by the director Ken Russell. Uh, Roger Daltrey of The Who plays Liszt and Ringo Starr plays the Pope, and <laughs> can't miss. And Rick Wakeman of the progressive rock band Yes composed a synthesizer-driven soundtrack. And I, I have an excerpt of the Wakeman soundtrack. Here it is. Listomania. also contains some arrangements of Wagner and Liszt sacrilegiously arranged for synthesizer and rock band. I, you know, Bing Crosby, Rick Wakeman, I didn't know when I would have the opportunity again to play that at the <laughs> Disney Hall. Um, so Liszt wrote uh, a set of two pieces uh, called Legends or Legend in French. The second one we're going to hear in an organ transcription. I'm going to quickly tell you the story of what the piece describes. Uh, it's about Liszt's patron saint, uh, Saint Francis of Paola, crossing the Strait of Messina to Sicily by floating on his cloak after having been denied passage by a boatman. And Liszt emulates the passage on water with triplet figurations, left-hand cascades, tremolos, and dramatic crescendos. Leonel Rock, a Swiss organist, transcribed that for the organ. Quick excerpt, that's the last excerpt for tonight by Steven Spooner playing the original piano arrangement. Tonight we're going to hear the organ transcription by Rog. Okay, so this is legend number two on the piano.
This is where the triplets start coming in. That symbolizes the waves. And this is just a little teaser. We're gonna hear the rest of the piece on the organ a little bit later. Thank you so much for coming early. I really appreciate that. Uh, a few more plugs, as I said a little bit earlier, Iveta's newest album, Light and Dark, is available on vinyl at the store downstairs. She also has a CD called Bach and Glass, a great combination, also available. I already told you about my CD, First and Grant. Uh, by the way, it was uh, inspired by Abbey Road by the Beatles to use the address of a place for the album title. There's a book by Jennifer Zobelein called A Forest of Pipes, and also a DVD called the Walt Disney Concert Hall of Oregon. If you have any more questions, hit me up on Facebook, facebook.com, Christoph Bull, or christophbull.com. It's been great seeing you. Have a great concert. <laughs>